Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you and your wallet. If you want to learn more about ways you can stretch every dollar, check out Clark.com. And when you want bargains, go to ClarkDeals.com. We post up to the minute the latest bargains that we like. We just don't post a list. Coming up in 20 minutes, I got to give you a special warning in today's Clark Rageous moment about a very low-tech ripoff that is unfortunately growing around the United States. And coming up in a half hour, this I'm going to love sharing with you. We're doing a water test with one of my staffers who is addicted to incredibly expensive bottled water. Right now, I want to talk about something incredibly expensive. How much it costs us as taxpayers to lock up nonviolent offenders. And I will tell you, I do not do a political show, but I am deeply offended by our attorney general who has decided to punish people to the extreme who are nonviolent drug offenders. I think it is backwards, idiotic, mean-spirited, and harmful to society, but most harmful to you and me as taxpayers. I think about the uh, very conservative Republican governor of Georgia who has implemented a program that is getting raves across America with diversion programs for people who are drug addicted or have mental illness that have committed nonviolent crime that are diverted into various forms of treatment at a tiny fraction of the cost of prison. And the result, recidivism is way down and crime is down as well. Now there's a new report that in the state of California it costs just under $76,000 a year for each prisoner in the California prison system. California spends nearly a billion dollars a month on housing prisoners. And this is very important to me because in the 1970s, I worked on a program that was a diversion program for people who were being given another chance instead of going to prison. And if you met the people I worked with and you didn't know that they had committed some kind of nonviolent crime, you would be shocked. You wouldn't wouldn't have seen it coming at all. You know, we look at people who commit a crime and some people put the same label on all of them. But it's not true. There are evil, rotten, despicable people who do horrendous things who need to be locked away for a long time or a lifetime. That is what prison is for. But, you know, this is a subject on which you may extremely disagree with me because I'm even in favor of legalization of drugs. 
I think we've wasted enormous national treasure and caused so many problems with making drugs illegal. And I despise drugs. I don't even like taking an Advil. So it's not about me wanting to take them. And yeah, I've got some crazy libertarian to me. It's true. And I don't understand the whole drug war thing. But anyway, it is the way we live in the United States. But the point is, for us as taxpayers, this is the definition of insanity. Making the same mistake over and over again and expecting a different result. There are people who have mental illness. There are people who have drug addictions. People with psychological problems. And the important thing is to try to make them productive citizens of society again. And not waste money locking people up at a $75,000 per person bill one of my staffers pointed out that I'm whining about what it costs to send a kid to college a year. This is more than what the colleges we've been looking at for my daughter cost to send somebody to prison. What are we thinking? I welcome your reactions, your comments, and your anger at me. If you go to ClarkStinks at Clark.com, let me know how you feel. But it is much better to mend people who can be mended than it is to lock them up and put them into a violent environment of a prison and take somebody who could be made a, a member of society, a productive one, and instead turn them into a hardened criminal? How dumb. Rick is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Rick, lighten the mood and the moment for me. <laughs> I'll try, Clark. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm going to be purchasing a new car. I've been driving my current one for 14 years, and so I'm considering buying a hybrid vehicle. Okay, first of all, let's go back. 14 years, that is fantastic. You know that, right? Yeah, I think it's got another five on it, but uh, the family's outgrowing it. Wonderful. All right, so what hybrid are you considering? The Chrysler Pacifica. Oh, okay, it's a first-year model. Yep. So that's always a little iffy, but the <laughs> every automotive reviewer who reviews that thing can't stop gushing. Okay. Yep. My favorite uh, was one I read in the Wall Street Journal, which the auto writer there was like, yeah, and by the way, it does get great fuel economy. <laughs> it was like that was almost irrelevant because the P Pacifica hybrid van was so incredible. So for people who are not aware, this is a plug-in van. You plug it in to an outlet at your home or into a high-voltage charger, and the first 30, help me out here, 35, 38 miles a day you drive, yeah, they say about 33. 33 miles a day. It is fully an electric van, seven-passenger, 
van, just like getting an Odyssey or a Sienna, but you average in the equivalent of electricity, you average converted to energy 84 miles a gallon. Am I close? Correct. Yep. Yep. 84. 84 miles a gallon. And, you know, you got an Odyssey or a Sienna and you're driving in urban traffic, you know, suburban traffic, stop and go. You're really only going to get a bona fide about 18 miles per gallon. Open road in either of those, you'll get probably near 30 miles per gallon. But in typical suburban driving, you'll get high teens. So going from that to 84 a gallon is fantastic. Yeah, it's it's quite an amazing uh, vehicle they have. Now, when you're driving, if you take an over-the-road trip, you end up averaging around 34 miles per gallon or 35, somewhere in there? Yeah, yep, that's correct. Yeah, so you're talking to somebody who's all in on battery vehicles and battery electric. So if you're looking for the person who say, whoa, don't do that, you're talking to the wrong guy. No, I'm more interested. So one of my decision points is getting the full federal tax credit of $7,500, which it qualifies for. But I'm trying to ensure that I get the full tax credit. Oh, you will. They talk about a phase-out period. Yeah, Chrysler's not near the phase-out. Okay. The phase-out is that, by automaker, and the phase-out was originally designed to punish Toyota. <laughs> and the funny thing is that the automaker that's really going to take it on the chin because of it is Tesla. But Chrysler has sold so few vehicles that are plug-in that the only one they have, I guess, would be the Fiat 500, that you'll have no trouble qualifying for the full 7,500. Okay. I was worried I had to hurry up and uh, file my federal taxes at the... Not that I have heard at all on that vehicle. And uh, it is a very comfortable vehicle. We've had it as a rental vehicle before for our family. We've been traveling. And it's comfortable just like an Odyssey or a Sienna. Okay. One last question if you have time. Yeah. I've, I've never bought uh, a warranty from a manufacturer. What I found intriguing is they're offering a lifetime warranty through the manufacturer. And... Being someone that's never purchased one, I've usually just kept the money in my pocket. But I'll drive this car at least 10 years. And is there a mileage cap on that warranty? No mileage cap. I would I would consider buying that, but you'll have an opportunity before the manufacturer's warranty expires to buy it. And the only reason I would consider buying it is this is a new technology for Chrysler, and it's the first year. Okay. Fair enough. How many thousands is it? So the uh, platinum model is at uh, 40... Oh, not the vehicle. I mean the warranty. Oh, Oh, the warranty. The warranty runs uh, $3,600. Oh, my goodness. For a lifetime. Oh, my goodness. Nearly 10% of the cost of the vehicle. It's not cheap. Wow. You may be able to negotiate on that. Because if the dealer sells it to you, they're making a markup, and you can stay on the fence about it and see if you can push that price down by being uh, iffy about whether you want to buy it. 
Molly is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Molly. Hello, how are you? Great. You are an entrepreneur. Yes, I am. I started my own business about 10 years ago. Congratulations to you. How can I be of service with it? Because it sounds like you've had a great run so far. Well, I have, but I believe that maybe subconsciously and maybe I'm starting to realize this, that I actually have stunted the growth of my business on purpose. Um, the reason being that I really like it just being me, and I like um, that there are fewer complications, but I do believe that I will have an opportunity to grow the business pretty significantly this year, and I'm concerned about what might be involved for a single-owner LLC adding an employee. There's no problem with that other than are you making a good living running it yourself? that um, I am making enough to keep our two girls in college. If you're doing that and you're happy with how you're running it, you've been doing it for a decade, you will change the entire nature of your enterprise if you start adding employees. And unless you really want that growth of the business... Keep it simple and keep it small with just you. And I think part of my concern was also adding an employee, what that might look like from an expense standpoint, and then, and also adding more burden to me time-wise, doing bookkeeping and other things like that. So, you know, if you're looking at me as a sounding board, just hearing you, it sounds like you need me to <laughs> say, don't, don't grow the business beyond what you can organically handle yourself. So I want to suggest a, a possible compromise. Just test okay. the waters a little with a part-timer. Ah. Don't jump okay. in with both feet. Try it with an additional person who works for you maybe 15, 20 hours a week. See if you like that is making uh, is an improvement in your business or in your lifestyle and if it's not then go back to it just being you don't feel like you're suddenly going to climb a mountain with growing the business just dip your toes in the water today's clark rageous moment is a special warning for you and it involves the theft of mail an old-fashioned, low-tech crime that is being reported around the country when you go to a traditional post office mailbox, criminals are putting a device in it that has been described as sticky, not quite like glue. Your mail you drop in gets caught by whatever this contraption is. Criminal comes along later before the Postal Service would come to collect mail from that box for the day, grabs out what's caught by their sticky contraption, goes through it, they find checks and other personal information. They're able to wash the checks, put a new payee on them, cash them for themselves. They're able to get account information, personal sensitive information that people mail. The key warning for you is when you go to a mailbox... Like you needed another thing to worry about. 
make sure that when you open it to drop mail in, that you hear that mail go clunk inside. If you don't, reach in. If you find a sticky kind of thing, you need to call the Postal Inspection Service immediately. If you're not able to retrieve your own mail and it has sensitive stuff in it, you need to see if you can get a postal person to get there from the closest post office to make sure that that mail does not fall in the wrong hands. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show, and we'll be right back. I'm so glad you've joined us here on The Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and your wallet. I have had a thing over the years where I have been extremely hostile to bottled water. The average person who drinks bottled water spends somewhere close to $1,400 of their hard-earned money on bottled water each year. But, you know, we have Team Clark, where we answer your calls off the air. And our director of Team Clark is a lawyer. Her name is Laurie. And she's so used to being able to spend money so frivolously that she can just take $20 bills and throw it out of her car. So Lori is obsessed with this bottled water called Fiji water, which is supposedly from the nation of Fiji and costs a lot of money, comes in a very decorative kind of bottle. And Lori, you allege, Lori is here with me, you alleged that you, in a blind taste test, without any reservation, would be able to identify Fiji water versus other bottled waters or tap water. Is that not correct? No, that is true. I actually thought I would be able to taste the difference between Fiji water and other water. And did I not set it up just like a lawyer would the whole way I did that preamble? Uh, Yes, you did. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, yes. I only play a lawyer on Uh. radio. I'm not one. So we have at Clark.com a picture of all the cups numbered. And we did a test with you. And were you able to clearly identify the Fiji water? I'm sad to say I was not. Could you identify which waters were tap, which were bottled, anything like that? No. You know, it was interesting. When all the water is in a clear plastic container that they all look alike, they all taste alike as well. So they actually all tasted the same to me. And I was just making a guess when I guessed which one I thought was Fiji, and I I was wrong. So how much have you been paying per bottle for Fiji water? Well, I've been paying different amounts. I try to get it on sale, Clark, and and I don't buy it all the time. Actually, the water that I chose was the water that's upstairs that's filtered water at work. So that's awesome because I a lot of times actually refill my Fiji water with the work water. The Fiji water bottle. The bottle. I'm sorry. Yeah, I refill the bottle with the water at work. Now, these, if you go to inconvenience stores, I call convenience stores, these are like $3 a pop? Two to $3. So I think we have done you such a favor that it's like we put a huge additional money into your wallet every month now. 
I will say I have a completely different opinion about bottled water versus filtered water. And You're still not ready to go to tap. No, no, I won't go to tap. I think I can taste the difference. See, but. my family drinks filtered water, but I only drink tap water. So the filter doesn't really cost much to filter the water, but I'm a straight out tap man. <laughs> because how are you going to get your fluoride for yeah, your tea? I knew tea? you were going to say that. You're right. Um, but I think some of the, well, the filtered water may still have the fluoride. I don't think so. We'll leave that to an expert. But the most important thing... Is it's free. Right. And your Fiji water is a fortune. It is. It is. But, you So know, have we broken you with the Fiji bottle, haven't You know, I think you might have. I really think you might have. I'll just use it to refill. Okay. So I want you to think about this conversation we've just had. And I've done this on TV twice over the years where we've done the blind taste tests of various waters. And it is really funny because no matter how much somebody is convinced, they can tell which is their, their favorite bottled water. The failure rate is overwhelming because however many, if you do statistical analysis, no matter how many samples you have, it's going to fit standard formula. So if you have four cups of water, there's truly only a 25% chance the person will be able to identify the bottled water they think is the great one. And if you are going to drink bottled water, buy the cheapest you can get. You know, at Costco, if you buy their big thing of bottled water, their big case of it, it's seven cents a bottle. So I don't want you spending that seven cents. But if you are going to waste money, at least waste a little bit of money instead of a couple of dollars a bottle. Thank you, Lori. You're welcome. Okay. <laughs> William is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, William. Hey, Clark. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Good. You want to talk about buying a home? That's right. I, um, I'm a longtime listener. And uh, consequently, I know that a lot of folks that call into your show are, are either first-time home buyers or in the process of saving their pennies to buy a home. And I just wanted to uh, share something that I've, I'm actually, this is my second home that I'm in now, and I've learned some things through the years about um, a, a hidden expense. I call it hidden in plain sight because it's often something that's right there in front of you. In fact, it's even a desirable quality in a lot of home purchases, and that's big trees. Um, so we've got a couple, we've got three or four now big, huge trees in our backyard. They're actually fairly healthy trees, but they, um, got enormous limbs that are overhanging the house that make us very nervous. And we're looking to the tune of several thousand dollars probably to get these things removed. And it got me to thinking about, you know, how many times, uh, folks really, you know, actually intentionally buy homes with these, with these big trees not realizing that they're, they could be in for a really large expense. All right, so I got a little story to share with you, William. The house yep. we live in now, our first night in the house, we got hit by a really bad storm, and it may have been a very low-level tornado because coming up our street, like almost in a straight line, one tree after another after another after another went down, we lost nine trees 
the first night at our house and one of our trees came down on our neighbor's house and demolished their garage. Ouch. First night out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, um, and of course the insurance companies, they don't pay for, they don't pay for prevention. So you're sort of, you're sort of gambling how long you want to wait. Um, and the other thing I've, I've really learned about trees and why I think it's great to have an arborist come, because I really love trees, and I don't think it would have necessarily changed my uh, decision about buying the house. That was one of the qualities we were looking for. But sort of to go into it with your eyes wide open is that it isn't just that a tree is, is dead or sick, that this sort, of thing can, this sort of thing can become a problem. And especially if you're on a, on a really tight budget, it's something to be aware of. And even things like I've learned about certain trees um, – underground cause problems like to go into your pipes tear up your sewer lines and things like that so just just wanted to bring it up as something for your listeners to be aware of and, and actually i had a question for you in well before we before we go to your questions so what you're suggesting yeah. is that as part of the due diligence when you're buying a home is that you do have an arborist check the trees to see if anything's really a problem that is what you're recommending yeah, that's what I, and even to give you some advice on what kinds of trees are there and whether they tend, certain tree species actually are more likely to drop limbs. They're, they're, they're weaker in the wood. Uh, willows are a really good example of that. I've got a neighbor who's got a willow tree, and that, every time we get even the mildest storm, that thing just drops branches like crazy. And fortunately, it's not over his house. But, um, you know, that's just a breed, a species of tree that is problematic. So just, yeah, having somebody come out and just give you an assessment, and it's worth the expense, even if you just, even if you still go through with it, just so that you know, okay, I need to set aside some money uh, to take care of this if it becomes a problem. Well, that is great advice. And you had a question you said. Yeah, so as I'm going through this process now of looking to have some limbs cut off these trees to to let us sleep easier at night... um, I'm a little concerned about liability issues, and and when I'm having folks come out to give me quotes, what I need to ask for in terms of insurance. You want to see a valid insurance certificate. Okay. And the legitimate tree service will provide you that and provide you with the agent that you can talk to to make sure that the insurance is in force. Okay. There are a lot of people who run around pretending to be tree services that are not up to the job. And so you stand the danger of them causing damage and a greater danger that one of their workers will get hurt. Yeah, that was my, that was my big concern. So you're thinking this through the right way, and it's the kind of thing you don't want to find out later. Oops, they did all this and they have no insurance. And then it's on you. Robin's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Robin. Robin? Hi. This, yes. This How are you Robin. doing? Hi, Clark. I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. You are facing a difficult circumstance. I am. My father is he's over 70. He has dementia now. And I'm, I'm his power of attorney. But he's still in that kind of phase where he's living his own, not his own, he lives with me, but he manages his bills and finances and he does his own thing. He just doesn't remember um, what he's done, what he hasn't done, and, and he's kind of 
not in tune with what's logical, what's wise, and um, not as much as he used to be amazing with finances and such. But anyway, so he's a prolific spender, and if anyone sends him an email, he just responds and applies and follows whatever instructions are given to him. So he's got all sorts of credit cards and and things maxed out, and, and just the situation has just become very scary for the rest of us in the family with what he's He's How many siblings do you have, Robin? Um, I have four siblings. And how much are the other three engaged? Um, we're all keeping in communication with each other. We're just, um, I'm the one that, he lives with me, and I'm the one that's kind of the spokesperson. Robin, we went through the same scenario with my mom. Really? And, you know, the... The process of her deteriorating went on for 16 years. Mm. And what we had to do as kids was we would do conference calls among ourselves. And, of course, in your case, you'd always be the lead on it. And what you want to try to do is come to a consensus as, as kids that you're going to explain to your dad that he can no longer have control of his own finances. Okay. And it's not an easy conversation, but you want it to be one where he understands that the four of you are doing it out of love and not out of bad intent. Yes. Because otherwise you're left with a terrible process of having to be appointed, and they call it a different thing state by state, but usually it's referred to is being appointed as your dad's conservator. And it can be expensive and time-consuming to do that. If you can get your dad to voluntarily relinquish the checkbook and the credit cards, it is a much smoother process and preserves money that would have to be spent otherwise. Okay. So the other question that we had um, is... Are there repercussions that we can prepare for or expect? All right. Um, so none of you are responsible for the bills that he has run up. Okay. So, you know, those... They won't come... They, they can't come after any of you. Credit card companies, okay. the banks will try. They'll try to con you into thinking you're responsible. You are not responsible. There are very, very rare circumstances where a kid could be held responsible, an adult child, for the expenses of a parent. And those would usually involve where someone could make a strong case that the spending was for the benefit of one of the four of you instead of for your dad. But, but otherwise, you are not legally responsible for his debts when he passes away. Do you know, does your dad have a will? Um, he has a cursory will. We went last year to get um, kind of a living will and power of attorneys and medical power of attorneys and all that. So the cursory will, who does it say is the executor or executrix? That would be myself. Wow, you get to do everything. Well, I'm trying to help. <laughs> wow. So as executrix, your responsibility when that time comes will be to figure out what your dad has and what he owes. And you that will be 
your responsibility is to parcel out. And there's a priority of who gets and who doesn't. But as far as responsibility for unpaid debts, that is not a responsibility of the heirs. Okay. But number one thing I heard from you, you got to get on that process that we did as kids. And have that uncomfortable conversation with your dad. And it is uncomfortable, but don't delay on that if he's got a spending problem and has dementia at the same time. Best to you and your dad. It's time for Ask Clark. That's where you post a question for me at Clark.com. Producer Joel stands in for you and asks that question. Clark Becky wrote in and says, how do you shop for a mortgage? It's more than just looking at the interest rate, right? Do you actually end up applying at several different places? You can if you wish. But the thing is, if you apply with multiple lenders, do it all in a concentrated period of time. The way your credit report reflects, your credit score reflects a mortgage application is there's an assumption if you do a number of mortgage applications all within a one-month period that you're not trying to buy six or eight or ten places at once. So you want to have a phase in your shopping for a mortgage where you decide, well, we want to see their offer, we want to see this offer, we want to see that offer, and that way it will only reflect one hard inquiry on your credit as far as where you look if this is for buying a home i have a strong preference that you shop locally for your mortgage with local banks credit unions mortgage brokers or bankers but if you're doing a refinance absolutely fine to shop for a refinance online because The risk level with a refinance is far, far lower than with a mortgage that you're getting to buy a home. We'll be right back. Thanks for joining us today, and don't forget to check out Clark.com's other podcast, The Empowerment Zone. Join our executive producer, Kim, as she shares stories that will inspire and empower you. Learn more at Clark.com slash Empowerment Zone. Coming up a half hour from now, I want to talk about trends and what's going on with housing around the country that is of significance of note for people who are homeowners, people that are trying to buy a home, people that are trying to sell a house. Clark.com is our web address. Clarkdeals.com is where you find money-saving opportunities, deals all around. Speaking of deals, looking for a job, what's the deal with that? Here we are at the beginning of the summer employment season for college students, high schoolers, teenagers, and where those jobs are is morphing. As you go around and you see the help wanted signs, One area that does not have the number of help wanted signs like in prior years are retailers, big retailers. Some big retailers are still doing fine, but retail is going through a rotation where a lot of big traditional retailers that accounted for huge numbers of hires 
at Christmas and during the summer, they're closing stores, laying people off, that kind of thing. But at the same time, overall retail employment is up. The jobs that are available in retail now tend to be with smaller retail formats, local stores, smaller chains, and the people you might have thought about or even worked for in a summertime before, they're not the place. And in fact, I talked about a few weeks ago that there's an assumption just generally in the country that retail employment is crashing and burning. Retail employment is actually climbing. It's just rotating where those jobs are. So it's not as simple as looking for a job with a well-known brand retailer. It's more complicated. So when you're looking for work, what I'd like for you to do if you are a teen or or college student is don't go to the mall, which was what people did historically. Go to strip centers with a lot of locally owned stores and locally owned franchises of national brands. And that's where you're going to find in the retail environment where the hiring is. And anybody involved in shipping right now, there's opportunities for employment, especially as you look closer to Christmas, if you want to pick up part-time work. But a lot of the work will be back-breaking work. It will pay more than traditional retail. If you take on a seasonal job with UPS or FedEx or a regional there's a lot of people aren't aware. There are a lot of regional delivery companies now that are in competition, at least in a region, with FedEx and UPS. And one thing I have failed to mention repeatedly is the Postal Service is finding new life in package delivery at the same time that the Postal Service has a rapidly aging workforce of people approaching retirement age, there's going to be a lot of employment opportunity with the Postal Service. That hadn't been true in a long time, but now there's going to be opportunity there as well. Hussein joins us on the Clark Howard Show. How are you? Hi, Clark. Thank you very much for taking my call. I would like to thank you about a couple of things. Number one, for your totally free podcasts. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Do you know why my podcasts are free? Yes, totally. <laughs> because my listeners would be very upset with me if I was charging for them. And I'll tell you a funny I know, thing. I, I really thank you very much for that. Well, I'll tell you and a funny thing. Two. Years ago, I had a, a, a partner, a joint venture partner, who was trying to, as strong as he could, get me to charge people for podcasts. And I was like, right. no, no, <laughs> I, I just can't do that. And so I want that information out there. It's very important to me that people be able to access information however they wish from me, whether it's 
podcast or smartphone or on the web or on the radio or on TV or newspaper or newsletters to have the information available in the format that you want at a price that'll make you smile free. Absolutely. I I really appreciate that. And number two, I would like to personally thank you for not commercializing yourself. I listen to you. You are very, very humble. So thank you very much for that, too. Uh, Clark, I used to work for a company for a number of years, and early on I started a 401k plan with them. I am not working for the same company. It's about uh, a little over three years now, but I have not touched my 401k. So my 401k is still with the same company that I used to work for, but it's in a large investment company, of course. Is it one of, my, one of my low-cost favorites or no? Well, I have a small Roth IRA with one of your low-cost favorites. <laughs> this one is in another company. I don't know if I could mention the name of the company or not. No, if it's not one of my low-cost ones, then that tells me the answer to the question. I would move, <laughs> yes. I would move the 401k to an IRA with a low-cost company. If you're already at Vanguard, you said, right? With a Roth? Yes, I have yeah. I have a small uh, Roth IRA with them, Clark. Then just open a regular IRA with them to receive the money from the old employer's 401k. And one thing, the old employer will try to send you a check. You do not want to uh-huh. check what you do with Vanguard is you open what's called a shell account, an IRA that doesn't have any money in it, and then they will help you with the paperwork to move the money direct from the old employer's administrator of the 401k straight to Vanguard. And that way there's no tax issues and the money goes straight into your own ultra-low-cost IRA. So the 401k thing, if you're not with one of the low-cost providers, and now I see who you're with. They are not a low-cost provider. You right. move that money so that your money can grow better for you. So Right. And where so, you work uh, now, do you have access to a 401k where you're working today? Yes, I am working, but my income compared to what I used to make is maybe even one-third or less. Oh, but, I'm sorry. But I've been listening to you for years and years, Clark. Even with this minimal income... I started another <laughs> 401k with this with this other company that I have. Well, that is great. I mean, here you are, your income gets crushed by two-thirds, and you're still saving for your future. I hope that the pay recovers over time, but the fact is you're not letting those years run away from you, continuing to contribute, and that's a great thing. Leslie's with us. Hello, Leslie. How are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you, Howard? Great, thank you. So, Leslie, you live in a part of the country where sometimes the earth decides to move under your feet. Is that true? That's right. Where do you live? I live in North San Diego County. Oh, you are just such a lucky person. Uh, Right? Paradise. It is a place that I could so see myself living. Come on. Except, you know what the problems are for me? What's that? There are two. What do you guess they are? Uh, Taxes. Yes. And housing costs. It's, it's ridiculous. 
Yeah. Yeah, you know, cheap guy can't handle those two things. It's it's the big price to pay. But if you can swing it, it's it's just so beautiful. You don't want to be anywhere else. <laughs> it's true and and the weather's perfect almost every day of the year. Right, it is. Yeah. So, what's not perfect though? What are you trying to make a decision on? Well, I'm wondering if I should purchase the earthquake insurance. Um, I get an offer every year. I try to pick the brains of my friends and say, hey, do you have earthquake insurance? Is it something we need to have? I know we're not on a fault line, but we, we feel it if there's an earthquake out in the ocean or inland, you know, a good ways away, it, it will make the house shake. So I didn't know for security's sake, is it something we should have? And also, the deductible is quite high. Yeah, you know, it's the same issue that I'm a property owner on the coast in Florida. It's the same issue that we face with hurricane insurance with very, very high premiums and very high deductibles. So it is a problem Mm -hmm. how you handle it. And the percent of people in California who buy earthquake coverage keeps going down and down and down. So the question is, is if the big one hit and you were to take a catastrophic loss, how would you be able to handle that? Hmm. Well, that's a good question because I guess that's the gamble. That sure. is it. And and so most Californians have taken that gamble. And what happens is if there was a absolute disastrous earthquake, it would be treated the same way people are treated following a catastrophic flood in parts of the country where homes are destroyed in a catastrophic flood. The federal government, after the declaration of a disaster area, would make a very, very, very low-interest, long-term loan to you mm. to be able to rebuild your home, but you would be taking on a loan obligation. Mm-hmm. And so that's the tough choice, is that you have an earthquake that could come but maybe never does, and you're looking at how much expense? It's $226. A year? A year. Buy it. Okay. Buy it at, at $226. The premium's so low because where you live in San Diego, the risk level must be low. Okay. But I would say that the the value of that, I could be just throwing away $226 of yours. Mm-hmm. But if you got hit, even with the high deductible, you'll be really glad you have it. It'd be well worth it. Yep. So Otherwise, I'm going to pay for a house twice. <laughs> right. And that is no fun at all paying for that mortgage and also paying for the federally subsidized relief loan. If you can insure against that for $200 and change, insure against it. Follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Our web address, clark.com. When you got a question for me, go clark.com slash ask. Jenny joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Thank you for making my call. It's my pleasure. You have an either-or question for me. Let's see if I can do it as an either-or. <laughs> okay. What um, are you facing? I currently have about, my husband and I, about $10,000 in credit card debt. Um, we had some unexpected issues come up, and but never have ever thought that I would have that much debt because I hate being in it. But my uh, question is, we don't have a car payment right now, but our cars are paid off. So I was contemplating selling my car and paying off all of the credit card debt and then just buying a new car. Um, and I, I realized that 
you know, significantly more than $10,000, but a lower interest rate and I can afford the payment. And I was just wondering if that would be wise. Would that help my credit score? Let me see if I follow that. You would get rid of the car you have now, get a new car with a new loan? Yes, but sell my car to pay off the credit card debt, and I would have no more credit card debt. And then start over with a new car loan. Right. So the average cost of a new car today is 32600 bucks. You can buy a new car for a lot yeah. less, but mm-hmm. right. I would rather see you, if you're driving for free and the car behaves itself, Yes. I would much rather see you keep driving what you have and instead put your efforts towards paying on the 10K that you have in credit card debt. Okay. Because to take the 10K to 30K, it just, I, I'm not excited about that. <laughs> so how old is the car you have? Um, it's a 2010. Oh, no, no, no. Keep that 2010. All and right. from here on, it doesn't have much value left to lose. So every year you keep it on the road, you're driving it for less and less cost. So I would just tackle that credit card debt as best you can. Uh, tell me, what's the interest rate on your credit card debt? Oh, gosh, it's like 10%. All right, 10% for credit card debt is not awful. <laughs> it feels awful. I know, but that's a <laughs> lot less than the average interest rate on a credit card, which I think is okay. around 17. Oh, gosh. So okay. Um, just I'll tell you what I love. See if you can figure out what it would cost you. In fact, it says it on your statement. It says on your statement how much you'd have to pay on each of your cards per month to wipe it out in three years. Oh, yeah, it does. It's like $335. It's just one card. So Um, if you think about you take out a payment on a new car at $32,000, it's going to be a lot more than that. So just treat it as if it's a car payment and pay that 300 and something each month because you would have been paying more anyway. Yes. <laughs> you sound discouraged. I, <laughs> well, I, I just, in my mind, okay, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and I think that by the time she turns 16, I would almost have that car paid off, and she could either take over payments, and then I'm trying to think you know, ahead as far as, because I know this car is not going to last me forever. Oh, it'll last a long time, and when she turns 16, that may be the car you want her driving, because it'll be cheaper to insure as a fully depreciated out used car, and then you get yourself something newer or new to drive at that point. Thanks for joining us today, and hey, if you like deals, check out our deals website. It's a great selection of hand-picked bargains from our deal-digging experts. Learn more at ClarkDeals.com. Follow this. In the years after the real estate bust, in many metro areas in the country, there was a back-to-the-city movement. And it was accepted as an article of faith that people in their 20s and 30s were not going to be suburban types like their parents or grandparents, that they wanted to live in hip, close-in neighborhoods, even in modestly-sized metro areas, not even the biggest cities. But now that people in their 20s and 30s who, because of the 
economic problems of the country and the rest put off buying a home, now that job situations have improved for so many people in their 20s and 30s, they're back in the hunt for a house. And guess where they're hunting? Pretty much where their parents and maybe grandparents did in the suburbs and different than their grandparents and maybe like some people's parents, looking in the exurbs too. You know what exurbs are? Those are distant areas in a metro area that involve ultra-long mileage commutes to work. And this is a key trend because of housing affordability. The closer in you build, the more expensive the land is. And let's face it, the less you get for your dollar if you're looking only at the square footage of the residence you live in. You may get less privacy, maybe in a, in a box, you know, in a, a condo or an apartment instead of in a home with your own yard. Many times close in, you face higher taxes. And so people are, for, in many cases, strict economic reasons, looking further out. Now, if you are a homeowner in an inner ring suburb, there actually is an opportunity for you to scare up a buyer from someone in their 20s and 30s in many cases, who otherwise might jump the inner ring suburb and think about buying new further out or way out. And for you as a buyer, you may in fact have a much shorter commute and pay a lower cost per square foot looking in an inner ring suburb. I think they are going to be the next area of opportunity for people buying a home as an investor, people buying a home to live in, because in so many metro areas, the disadvantage of jumping to the outer ring suburbs and the exurbs are the number of hours a day you spend on the road. Just my thought. And by the way, the next thing that's going to happen is I believe in a lot of metro areas, the apartment rents that escalated so much close in are going to definitely moderate and in many cities drop. And Margarita's with us on the Clark Howard Show. How are you today? I'm fine. I'm a big fan, Clark. Well, I'm glad to have you here. Your son needs some help. What's the story? Yeah, I just discovered the situation, and I was planning his 30th birthday party that's coming up, and I just realized, as a mother, I must have failed somewhere. So my birthday present to him is to hopefully get him back on track. He has made a commitment to meet with me once a week, and I'm going to kind of guide him. I've learned myself along the way how to have a better future, you know, with putting money away and learning how to 
navigate all of the things that you have to navigate, you know, in this day and age. So he's well, what is it? Next. What is it you discovered about him that you're beating yourself up? Uh, well, he has not filed any of his taxes, federal or state, for about the last four years. Being, you know, in the food service industry, he makes very little money. I think he just wasn't really concerned. He's, he's a musician. You know, they have this attitude that he lives on his own always been self-sufficient since he was 20 years old, but he just doesn't take care of these, you know, issues that all of us know we have to do. We well, can't just ignore them. Well, let me tell you some things. First, I want you to relax some. If he's been at a very low wage for these four years, mm-hmm. he may not be in any significant amount of trouble. Okay. So uh, the first things first, this is going to sound crazy, but the IRS will actually help him file returns for those four years if he can't afford to pay for somebody to prepare them. But the better answer, if you want to step in and help, would Mm -hmm. be to go to an enrolled agent or a CPA who does tax and pay Mm -hmm. him or her to help reconstruct the four years as best as possible and file the returns. Because if he has very little tax liability from those four years, and some of them, mm-hmm. if he's been very low wage, he may not have any tax liability for them. He may mm-hmm. not have as big a problem as you suspect. And that's what I was hoping. I guess what I was wondering, just the fact that he didn't file, is there a penalty for just not filing All right, So there's a failure to file penalty, but it's based on what your tax liability is, ah, is what makes okay. it really grow. So if he had no tax liability in a year, Mm -hmm. it's not the problem you suspect. And in fact, there may be a year that he's actually due a refund for (laughs) if he filed a return that you lose that after a certain amount of time. That's the part that I was wondering because I, yeah, I'm pretty sure most of it he would have probably either gotten some slight refund or like you say maybe not even anything at all but yeah so so relax you want to be of helped him as a 30th birthday gift take him to see a tax person do reconstruct the four years and lift this burden from you and know you did not fail as a mom let go with that greg is with us hi greg how are you today all right how you doing great thank you greg you are completely puzzled by something that confuses a lot of people who have signed up for the free Credit Karma credit score stuff. What is it that's driving you batty? Well, I've been raising my credit score up, 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 and I got it up to one says 715 and the other one says 701. But my problem is when I went to refinance, the guy's telling me that my credit score is 615. I said, well, why is it these two things on Credit Karma say I'm in the seven? And he was saying about a housing thing they use or something, and I'm just confused. All right, let me explain that. We talk about our credit score, but we actually have a zillion different credit scores. And a lender will use for a mortgage, will use a credit scoring service that comes up with a housing credit score. See, it's a different kind of credit score. But even with that, it shouldn't be 100 points different than what you're showing on Credit Karma. Has the lender showed you your credit report that they're drawing on to see if the information on there is actually accurate? Um, No. What it was, at the time, my credit score on Credit Karma 
it was actually 75 points higher than what they were saying for the housing thing back at the time. And it's been raised like 28 points since last month. But basically when I've done it, it was 75 points lower with this housing credit they said they used. But was the information on the credit report itself the same? Like, was everything on there really yours? Did it? You haven't yeah, seen I, the I actual... I didn't get into that with him. I just, you know, he just told me that it's 625, and I asked him, well, how can it be 625 and on these credit karma, I'm showing in the sevens, I'm up 701, 703 on the other one, why does it show seven something, and you're telling me 625, and that's the only thing he told me was, for housing, we use a different thing. And that's yeah, but why. that's not an explanation. That's not a reason. That's an excuse. So call the guy back and ask him to send you a copy of the credit report that generates that score. Because there okay. may be something on that credit report that's not accurate or right. Okay. There may be something on it that is true but didn't show up on the credit report from TransUnion or Equifax that Credit Karma is drawing on. Okay. It may be something that's on an Experian report. There's another okay. thing also, when a lender is pulling a report on you for a mortgage, they may get a wider array of information, some of which may not even be true, that's on there. That's why you need to see the report to see if there's anything on there you need to be challenging. Okay. At 625, that's not going to get you where you want to be on a mortgage. No. So that's why you got to dig in and find out what's really behind the curtain, what might be causing you to be at that 625. Follow me at facebook.com slash Clark Howard. Our web address, clark.com. When you got a question for me, go clark.com slash ask. James is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, James. Hi, Clark. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. Sure, James. You're calling from a land far, far away. I am. Where are you? I am in the town of Chaux, France. Okay. I've been to France many times. I have no clue where that is. That's the northeast. We're about an hour and 15 minutes south, uh, southeast slightly from the Brussels airport. Okay, so you're at the Belgium-French border, and your call connection, at least so far, is better than a lot of people calling right here in the good old USA. What calling service are you on that's so clear? I have a cell phone that I got here through one of their French companies, and I pay 13, I think it's 12 or 13 euros a month, and I get unlimited calls here in text in France and to the United States. What a deal. So you've yes, got several <laughs> you've got several questions for me as an American living overseas. Let's see if I can handle them. Sure. I'm, I was curious if it's financial suicide to invest outside the umbrella of a Roth or traditional IRA. I've been using that app that I heard you talk about a few weeks ago called Robinhood, and I just tried it out. I don't, I'm not a big fan either of buying stocks uh, directly, but I just tried it out. They don't have any fees or anything. Is that a is that financially uh, with taxes? Is that a that idea long run? No. So with Robinhood, you're able to download the app and you can do free stock trading. So it's for an investor who likes buying and selling individual stocks and or you could buy, I assume, exchange traded funds on there, but it's going to be in taxable accounts. So are you eligible, even though you're living in France, are you eligible to do a Roth IRA 
or is that out for you right now? Are you reporting on a U.S. tax return, or are you right now not yes, doing? Yes, we, we we are. We actually just opened up. Uh, well, I had a Roth IRA, but my wife and I both have a Roth IRA, and I'm getting ready to to get set up with a uh, the company I found on your website with Vanguard. It's in the process of being transferred over to them, and we're going to mostly do everything through them. Okay. And I was just trying this out for curiosity and just to see what it what it did. So Vanguard's is opposite doing something like Robinhood as you could be. Vanguard's about just buying a wide market and putting your money in there. And for you, the every dollar you put in at first should be into tax-free accounts like a Roth. And then uh-huh. only after that, if you can max that out, would you want to look at doing investing outside of a tax-sheltered account in something like buying and selling stocks in Robinhood? Okay. And any other questions I can answer for you? Yeah, well, this was um, as well uh, life insurance. I currently, my wife and I both have a thirty-year term life insurance, and I was just curious if my life insurance now that I have will carry me through till I'm fifty-nine. If I wanted to get coverage to cover me till sixty-eight or seventy, what would the best strategy be as far as getting? Should I get two policies or buy one in ten? And how years old are you now? Try and redo. It? I'm thirty-one. So you're still at a point where buying 30-year level term doesn't take you as far as you'd like to. So there is an alternative, but I hold my nose to mention it, and that is if you bought a whole life policy, a simple whole life policy, you'll pay a huge amount more per each $1,000 of coverage, but it has a savings account built into it as well as the face value of the life insurance, and it is what they refer to in the industry as permanent insurance. If you're worried that your health issues, you might have health issues that down the road you won't be able to buy a level term policy that would carry you through, you know, to the age you want, then that would mm-hmm. be an alternative. Okay, okay, I'll look into that. And, uh, I guess my, and by uh, the way, if you do buy a yeah. whole life policy, buy only from a company rated A plus plus by AM Best. Okay, yeah, I think we're with the company now. We got the we got the really good rating on our health because we were young, or still are. But um, I uh, definitely thought about asking you about that to make sure I don't want to let it go until like the last minute when it's getting ready to expire in a couple sure. of years or twenty-seven years. But the last question I had was um, it was concerning Vanguard. I heard you talk about paper statements with your bank. You should always keep the paper statements because it's proof of what's really in your account and it's a good it's good protection. With Vanguard, each month when the statement posts, you print it out and file it away. Okay. And you have a printed copy. Okay, and, yeah, we do that with all our accounts now at the, this point because I'm just kind of, I like to keep track of everything. And especially but, being an ac- expat, that's a good idea. And again, I must compliment you. You have the best sounding cell phone calling from 4,500 miles away that just about I've ever heard. So good for you at $13 a month for unlimited free calling around France and to the United States. It's time for Ask Clark, where you post a question for me at ClarkHoward.com. Joel, who's first? Clark Brad wrote it. He says, I own a timeshare. It's paid in full that I purchased in 1999. I just don't have the time to use it, and I'm not happy with the fees. My question is, can you recommend an honest company to assist in selling it? And B, what are the repercussions of just not paying the fees and walking away? Can't walk away because they'll eat you up in court. They'll get a judgment against you. It will haunt you. Brutal. Finding a way to sell it 
reality, things have improved just a hair, just a touch from the depths of the Great Recession where you had to pay people thousands of dollars to take over a timeshare that was already paid for. Now you might be able to straight out give it away. There's a website called vacatia.com, V-A-C-A-T-I-A.com, where you may be able to scare up someone who will take it over, maybe even pay you a tiny amount of money for your timeshare. But anybody who says pay them and they'll get it sold for you, liar, liar. Thanks again for being here with us today on The Clark Howard Show.